Hey everyone, this is JP. Real quick before we start today, I want to tell you about an app called Train Your Ears. If you listened to the EQ episode, you heard me talk about Train Your Ears. And it's an app that really helped me to get my ear around the frequency spectrum. So if you're struggling to hear 200 hertz versus say 300 or 400 hertz, I highly recommend this app to you. Go to www.trainyourears.com slash MPT as in music production talks. And if you buy it via that link, we get a small kickback and we would really appreciate the support. Thanks so much. And on with the show. Hello and welcome. Each week on Music Production Talks, join me, Chris Jacoby, and me, JP Ruggieri, as we skip over teaching you how to make fat beats and record screaming electric guitars. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And instead, we're going to jump straight into having nuanced conversations about producing music that actually says something. If you're a musician that wants to discover how to actually record your songs in a way that you want them to sound, or you're a producer that's looking to hone your skills. Or maybe you just want to hear interesting stories from the other side of the glass, so to speak. You are in the right place. All right, let's get on with the show. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us again on another episode of Music Production Talks. My name is JP Ruggieri. I'm here with my very good and very sick friend, Chris Jacoby, who has a cold. Chris, tell me, how's it feel to have a cold after all these years <laughs> of isolation? Uh, it's fine. Um, <laughs> Do you yeah. miss it? Miss having a cold? Uh, not particularly, but it is spring here, so that's why I'm sick. Um, mm. All the oak trees are like dumping pollen. Oh, so is it a cold or is it an allergy? Well, I guess it's allergies that's like morphing into a sinus infection or something. Oh, fun. beautiful. So, yeah, I guess it's not a proper like virus or something okay right but i feel like crap so let's do that great and i'm sorry if my voice is froggy throughout the episode it's all about the froggy voice that's what i always say it's my deep radio voice (laughs) i'm not gonna do that all right so what are we talking about today well today we're talking about uh the music production process which i believe you had somebody email you and and suggest this as an episode they wanted to hear us talk about it. Is that correct? That is correct. His name's Felix, and I'm blanking on his last name right now, but thanks, Felix. Felix, this episode's for you. Um, tell, tell me and the audience a little bit about what F- Felix said to you. Okay, here's what Felix said. He would like a better description of what your process looks like through all the different stages of writing and composing and recording and mixing and mastering, how all those things kind of tie together. And I think that's important because a lot of times on the show, we're talking about uh, recording slash mixing, like the technical audio side of things, which is obviously important, but... um, that's just one piece of the whole puzzle, you know? So I think it'd be cool to jump into how do you look at um, songs and the artists you're working with, if that's yourself or someone else you're producing and get from you have a voice memo to you have a final master and all the different steps involved with that. So Mm. yeah, 
But uh, JP, you're producing your own. No, John is producing your project, but you're making your own project right now. We're kind of doing it together. It's like a co-production, co-production deal. But uh, how did that project kind of start out? Yeah, um, I've been working on this record now. God, it's like two and a half years. But the, the only reason it, it's been taking so long is just because I'm. I keep getting. Uh, sidetracked with other projects that I get hired to do and this is the thing when you're an um, artist but you also do work for other people's music is like you get a gig and it's like well I gotta take the gig and then your your project gets pushed to the side and uh, I was finally in mixing mode for this record after trying to get there for a year and I just got this offer for a gig that's tying me up now for the next two and a half months. So there it goes. I was like, just getting into it. I was like, sweet, it's happening. And I was like, man. <laughs> yeah. I feel like every kind of side guy, guitar player person I know that has tried to make their own record, this is exactly yeah. how it goes. But it does sound like yours is going to come out at some point. Whereas I feel like a lot of people, it's just like, oh man, this is super cool. And you hear some rough mixes and then it just like gets shelved forever. No, it's totally going to come out and it'll, it'll be out by the end of the year. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's all done. It just needs to be mixed. And I've, I've, I've mixed like the first quarter of it, but I, I am getting sidetracked here. How did, (laughs) how did it start JP? How did it start? Yeah. Um, that's great. Great question. Um, I well I guess for this record like you know I'm sure as many songwriters do um you know our phones are filled with voice memos of ideas and um things like that and you could really spend hours going through that stuff I mean like literally sometimes days and um I uh I'll do that every now and then, like, especially if like I'm flying or something where I have some time to kill, like I've got a little notes page on my phone that, um, I'll write down which ideas excite me. And, um, and a lot of them are unfinished and, um, I'll kind of reference the notes page of the ideas that excite me. Um, when I'm feeling like I, I need to sit down and do some writing. Um, and try to get as many songs done as I as I can. I know a lot of people like to go into the studio with like extra amount of songs and uh and then they, you know, record like twenty five of them or something and then they only keep ten. Uh I've never done that before. I I don't know, maybe I will in the future, but um I always just go in with like the amount of songs that I want to do and just make sure that I feel really good about them. And for this record, like I kind of had a clear idea of what I wanted out of, of the band, but I was also very like trying to stay unattached and being open. Cause that's something, and I'm sure you can go on this a little bit too, Chris, is that um, like when you're working for other people, artists like there there is a certain uh it's the right word like a certain fear that comes out of the artist of wanting to to just go for something totally different you know if somebody else has an idea in the room and on the first day of our sessions i kind of said to everybody including 
Brooke, who was the uh, engineer, I very specifically like brought everyone together. I was like, look, this is a group effort. Like I want all ideas on the table. Like, like who, if you're hearing something, tell us about it and let's try it. Even if we don't think it's going to be cool. Like I want to try it. Let's just take the, take, yeah. take the time. And we, uh, man, a lot of great stuff came out of that and some stuff that didn't work came out of that too. Um, so I think that's a, a really great thing to keep in mind when you're going in for a session is just like trying to be, uh, open, but also being, being prepared as well. It sounds kind of obvious, but that's something that doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. Well, I feel like the main thing is knowing, uh, how open you are or want to be, or if you're producing someone else, how open they are. Like, you know, if it's a band, like, is it a democracy or is it really like this one dude's band and everyone else is just going to do what the lead person says? Or in your case, like, is you could have, you could have come in and said, everyone that's involved is going to, here's my vision and do that, you know, but you didn't. Um, and that's a huge, you know, decision that needs to be made. And I will say that if you don't understand that about somebody else you're producing, can really cause you a lot of grief. Mm. I've I had that really early on where I wanted to um, kind of create a kind of the situation you're talking about. Like I'm going to bring in some people I trust around this band. And then it's going to be this collaborative thing. And like, I very quickly realized like, oh, they don't want that at all. Like they have pretty clear ideas of what they want to do. And now they're trying to get these musicians to kind of be robots, right? Like be be my drum machine. Here's my idea, which that's fine. But I would have brought in a different drummer. I brought in a drummer that I liked who was creative yeah. Right. And that isn't a machine and isn't the type of drummer that you're like, play boom, boom, cat, boom, boom. No, move your kick drum one eighth note to the, le-. you know, there are people that could do that and would be happy yeah. to do that. So I think it's just kind of understanding um, what you're going for. Um, and you're all, you, the other thing I picked up on is that you, I have worked with several people that have done exactly what you're talking about, where it's like, these are the 10 songs I'm doing. I've lived with them for a long time. I might even, I mean, I've worked with people who are like, I know the track order. Like, yeah. this is track one, this is track two. I've, they've already thought about how everything flows into the next thing and the various tempos and keys and whatever. And then I've also worked with people that like, there's nothing written, mm-hmm. which can really work out well, but it's kind of like unnerving to think yeah. of starting a project like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did I did this project a few years ago. I was just thinking about it where uh, there were no songs. And this was with Penny and Sparrow. The guitar player would come down to my house and he had some like reference tracks. They were all over the place. It'd be like, like something super modern and then like a Beatles track. And like, it was just like all over the map. But he'd yeah. be like, I like this groove. We would program the groove on a drum machine. I had like an, it's not a real 808. It's like an 808 clone or whatever. Um, we'd program this beat, loop it out, and then he would go back and replace all the parts that were on the drum machine with live percussion. Wow. So like, cool. 
he would go just play along. Like, I remember we did one thing that was like, instead of a kick drum, we just used a box, like, and just hit it with the kick drum pedal. Yeah. And he had like this little wood block. And so then we had this like organic drum machine that like, you know, it varied in level. We didn't just straight sample replace. And we would loop that out for like 10 minutes. And then I would play bass and he would play guitar and we would just jam until we found a groove that was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then it was like, yeah. save next song. And we just did that for like, probably like 10, 15 ideas. And then after that, it was like, they went and wrote songs to that and mm. morphed everything. So by the time I heard it like a year later or something, maybe six months later, I can't remember. It was just like, whoa. It was like, oh yeah, there's like that speck of an idea that we started with, but they'd written right. a whole song around it. And then we produced on top of that. And um, that was a really cool process. That's I really cool. enjoyed that. What's the What's the record? That one's called Finch. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think Man, you played really... on it in some capacity, but maybe was, that was the one before. But um, that's really cool. That That kind of reminds me of um, what what I think is going to be track two of my um, uh, uh, album. It's a It's a song on there called kill a smile and i i wrote that just with like an 808 groove that i programmed on my computer and um it's like the most simple groove and i just came up with this you know i just started having fun and jamming to it and just kind of came up with this idea for a song and then as i as i i did what i do often when i write lyrics which is i go out walking and and kind of had that melody mm. in my head and just kind of wrote the song that way um, that's interesting but that song would have like never happened if it wasn't for that 808 groove like that's the only reason it happened and then when we recorded it Jono um had uh the great idea of playing over the 808 like i i kind of brought in this demo and i was like so here's what i kind of wanted to sound like and He's like, man, let's keep that 808 track and just play on top of that. And it's yeah. really cool because he's kind of like cutting. He, he's like playing on top of it, but then he'll cut out for like a bar or something. Mm -hmm. and, and you hear the 808 come in and it's like, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. One one one, one thing that I've learned a lot from Jono and I, 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 I keep saying Jono. Jono is, uh, his full name is Jono Ricks, and he's the drummer for uh, a band called The Wood Brothers, who I'm sure you've heard us talk about on the show before. And if you don't know them, you should check them out because they're one of the greatest bands out there right now. I think they're just amazing. Um, but Jono is an incredible drummer, and um, he does a lot of producing. And one thing I've learned just from being on his sessions um, is uh the amount of like mental preparation and like thought that goes into choosing the band that's going to be on the recording it's like i i remember like realizing that a couple of years ago just from working with him and thinking wow so often like i just want to get all my friends on the on the on the session and i'm mm. I'm like, yeah, call this person, blah, blah, blah. And while that's cool and everything, um, Jono's approach is very much like he's just purely thinking about the music. Like, mm. it's like, what what will this musician sound like on this project? What will that musician sound like on this project? And um, it's really about 
the chemistry of the personalities and the chemistry of the playing um, within this, the session, that's something that he's like really good at. I feel like is, is just being able to put a band together in a way that really makes sense. Musically speaking. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's probably, I mean, we kind of touched on that before of just kind of knowing which people you need, but I remember uh, when I was just starting out, I was really into that. Well, I was probably still in college or something. When that Raising Sand album came out, mm-hmm. I was just obsessed with it. I had it on vinyl and I would just sit in my bed with my headphones on and listen to that thing over and over and over. And I would read through the credits and then I would like go find all the things that those people had played on. And I admittedly kind of like stalked some of the engineers on that session and I got a hold of one of them, this guy, Stacy Parrish. And I was like, can I ask you some, this was all over email. Like, can I ask you some questions? And, and one of the pieces of advice that he gave me, like, I will never forget this was just, um, you know, get like, there's nothing better than just like a room full of really great creative musicians that are well-fed. <laughs> and, and like that yeah. piece of it of like, just make sure everyone's in a good mood. They've all eaten. No one's having like yeah. a weird blood sugar issue. And then like, you're just kind of sitting around waiting for that moment where they all play and it works, you know? And, um, but it's, yeah, but it's knowing to put the right people together. And I, I would doubt that he's purely thinking musically because the, the hang of it is so important too like i've certainly hired people before that i thought were good players and then frankly they turned out to be kind of assholes on the gig and like right really really brought the like morale of the session down it yeah totally changes everything and i'd much rather have a person that i like around um than you know some hot shot or something but i think there's a best of both worlds you know, and I think, especially because he's a great player, he probably knows a lot of people that he's friends with that mm-hmm. are also great players, you know? Yeah, right. So. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the food thing because one thing um, I will say just from, you know, from being on both sides of the situation in terms of like being a solo artist who's hiring people to come in and play and then being a hired person who comes into play, um, I just feel like if it's your session buy the buy the band and the crew food like like pay yeah. for their lunch and it's like I, I don't it's not I don't want to make it sound like I I'm like holding a grudge against people who don't like the sessions that I've been on where I had to pay for my lunch but it's 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 not really about the money thing it's more of just like you know you go out for lunch with your friend and you're you know you haven't seen him in a while you're like hey i want to buy you lunch and makes them feel good like it's it's more of just like trying to get i don't know it's just something like i realize money's tight for all of us but any any time i've done a recording i i always like that's not even a, a question in my brain it's like i'm right i am paying for the lunch, just like I'm going to pay for studio time. It's the same exact thing for me. Yeah. And you can, I mean, you can do it at whatever level you need to do it. Like, I mean, yeah. sure. That like, if you've got a multi-day session with a lot of people and you're buying like restaurant food for all that, that can really add up. 
But mm-hmm. I've I've worked with bands that are like, well, especially when we're doing projects at my house or something. It's like, hey, we're gonna, um, you know, cook something that we can yeah. eat off for a few days, or um, kind of the in between. I saw a band do this, and I was like, oh, that's really smart. I wouldn't have thought of that. They would like go to the grocery store and get like the big pre-made sandwich. Yeah, that's you know, great. and it's like yeah. it's somewhere halfway between making your own sandwich and like eating out. Um, yeah, it's like it, you know, sh- showing up to a session with like healthy snacks, like some salad to snack on, some carrots, some fruit and stuff. Like, I mean, it's, it's there's just so many times where I show up to this se- to session and like there's no there's no food there, yeah. and it's yeah. like and and we're there for eight for eight hours, usually more trying to really stay focused and and trying to like really feel good i, I think yeah. that's what it really comes down to is like the better the band feels i mean it's the same thing as like if you're on a gig and like you get fed versus when you're on a gig when you don't get fed like you feel better you feel more uh apt to go back to the venue who's going to feed you because it, it probably felt better to play there because you felt like you were uh uh appreciated more it's 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 just something that is like a little bit of a pet peeve of mine yeah like not a a big deal but like i don't know when you're on a a session and there's there's no food i'm always like in the back of my head i'm like come on really you could have just got some food and yeah feel better but just just a small thing well and that you know also if you're working in a situation where maybe there's a few people that haven't really spend a lot of time together or work together. It's like a great way to kind of totally bond. Yeah. Like let's all sit down and eat and get to know each other versus, Oh, there's no food and people are kind of ducking out and eating separately. And you're trying to just keep everyone working the whole time. Cause like we're paying for the studio and it's like, I get it. You're saving money per hour maybe, but you're probably not because you're not capturing the best of everyone. You know, it's like a lot of times, when you're the right one writing the checks, which I've been a lot of times because I tend to do like a project rate thing, um, you know, I can get in that mindset of, oh my God, there's all these of people. Course. And it's it like, it just adds up. So it's so much money. You have to yeah. remember that you're, we're not making widgets, right? It's not like a, an assembly line where every, every hour needs to be the same amount of productive. If you can get everyone to the same, to this good place. Like they've all had a good meal. They get to know each other. They're comfortable with the song. Maybe that took three hours and now they play the whole song down in 30 minutes. Yeah. Worth it. You know what I mean? You could have sat there for four hours with everyone plugged in and banging their heads against the wall and crashing and like getting irritated and you probably wouldn't get that moment anyway. So, um, yeah, it's all about kind of cultivating that, that team and like a moment of creativity because uh, yeah. that's all you really need sometimes. I mean, and then there's like overdub sessions and it really does feel like kind of a marathon. Uh, yeah. But even more so, you need to be eating healthy food and drinking plenty of water and doing some yoga ball stretches and treating oh, it yeah. like, mm. you know, a marathon. And sorry, I'm getting on a tear now. But I was just <laughs> thinking about, you know, like you've seen like Google offices or whatever where they have the nap pods and they've got yeah, like, totally. the snacks. And I, my sister-in-law used to work for Google and she's like, well, they kind of like, if you take too many naps, they're going to talk to you about it or whatever. It's like, they're there and you're not supposed to use them. But, um, you know, I just think about like a business probably thinks about their 
employees that they're paying a salary and all this. It was like, you know, an asset to the business and they're willing to invest, you know, food, money and nap pod space into making sure that those people are happy and productive and want to be there and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it's no different. I just have to stop you to say I totally agree with this. And the thing to come away with if, is if you ever hire Chris or me to work on your project, there goddamn better well be a nap pot in there or else <laughs> we're not taking it. This is bullshit. Dude, I gotta, I gotta tell you this story about this guy I hired one time. Uh, I brought this violinist down, okay? And he's like this real crazy kind of... Like he, he reminds you of like a gypsy or something. Like he's just like right. real out there you know and he was like a friend of a friend he's like oh yeah he'll do a good job he showed up like an hour late to this was when i was working out of my apartment and he shows up to the apartment and he's like man i had a gig last night like i didn't get home until 4 a.m do you mind if i take a nap (laughs) (laughs) and i was like uh what yeah i guess so so he went up like i had this loft you might remember and i had this weird little chair and he like sat in the chair and like took a nap for half an hour and then he came down he's like hey do you have any coffee (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah i got some coffee and so then he drank coffee and he's like all right i'm ready to play you know and he like knocked it out pretty quick or whatever and he brought a friend with him who is equally as weird and he played ood and oh, wow. he, at the end of the session, he's like, hey, do you mind if we do like an Ood demo? And I was like, <laughs> okay. And then like I get the mic set up because I was like, I've never recorded an Ood. That sounded interesting to me. Right. I, like, he wasn't paying me to do that, but we were done with what we needed to do. And right before he gets going, he's like, do you have any weed? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I just, I just play better if I, if I have some weed. So he smoked some oh weed and then just God. like played, you know... 30 minutes of Ood improv. Oh and I was just God, like, this trip. was the weirdest session. Um, Amazing. Okay, so um, getting back. All right, back. W- where are we in the production process now? We've ate, we've uh, eaten a kale salad, we've taken a nap, we're good to go. We drank pr- plenty of water, yeah. We've, yeah. Got, we've installed the nap pods in the recording yeah. room. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, and we've kind of touched on it, but like, how do you feel about demos ahead of time? Mm. Like how should you demo? How detailed should you get, et cetera? I don't know. You know, I'm torn at this point because I made demos for this record on four different songs. Uh, I mean, no, I mean, I, I made kind of detailed demos on this record for four different songs. The rest of them I just had like, you know, iPhone recordings of me playing the song. But there are four tracks that I like actually kind of got inspired with and started layering some things and they ended up being the tracks for the record that we just played on top of and uh it came they came out really cool so i i think um you know the obvious thing with demos is the demoitis where you get so used to hearing the demo that anything that potentially could be better you might not like because you're just so used to hearing that demo. Right. I don't know. I don't know. That's, I, I really don't. I guess it depends. Like for me, like I'm just thinking about if I were producing a project, like it would depend on the artist and the band that, that we, that we were working with. Like if we were working with a band that I knew and I felt really confident about 
and an artist who I felt like um, didn't have a lot of fear and felt, you know, open about about just going for it, um, then I wouldn't want to do demos. But if it was something that was maybe felt like it was more boxed in a little bit, then I think it would be good to kind of plan some stuff out. Do you yeah. agree with that? Yeah, I guess if it's like something more composed and intricate or something. Like I'm, yeah, th- that- I'm thinking of like, uh, I was just listening to this Alan Parsons interview uh, yesterday on uh, Andrew Shep's podcast. And, you know, he did Dark Side of the Moon and he's done a lot of like prog rock. And, and I don't know, anyway, he didn't do this, but it's got me thinking about like, like ELO, like Mr. Blue Sky or Bohemian Rhapsody. It's like, how the heck would you make that without some yeah. kind of framework? Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe they did. Um, maybe it just started with the piano or something. But, uh, you know, I think about this Chris Casper session that I was just on two weeks ago, and Chris didn't want to send us any demos. Like, he didn't want us to hear anything about the music before, like, like un- until right before we went into the live room to play it. So, and I remember us talking about that a lot during that week of just like, um, man, this is such a interesting way to record in terms of like having him just strum the song on an acoustic guitar one time and then us just going in and doing a few takes. It really, it really did dictate dictate the the like sonic shape of the record like it would have been way different if i had gotten demos like i would have felt like oh man i I gotta be prepared and like know what you know have some ideas going in and and by the time i went in i would have heard the song 10 or 15 times and known how to play it and instead like you're we're we're really learning learning the song on the recording and there's a lot of exploring happening and everything is fresh and really um, exciting and you totally hear it in the music like it's a totally but I think that worked because a of the of the band that got put together and b because Chris wanted that like that was his idea to do that and so everybody was kind of it just kind of worked for that team I think um, so it's got to be the right project to do something. Like yeah, that. I guess you're right. I yeah. would think like like gun to my head, no demos. Mm. But um, I have done a lot of things that kind of came about like you're describing with those four songs on your project of like if the artist is someone who is, you know, a competent player and you know, can kind of engineer themselves on like a small rig or whatever. Sometimes they come up with cool stuff and then you can kind of build on that. But um, I don't know. It just, I think the thing is I don't want to miss that moment of inspiration. Yeah. And it sounds like in those songs that you're talking about on your album, the moment of inspiration really happened you alone in your studio working on those songs and then you've got to keep that and work around it and it's like well we know we're going into the studio with all these people why don't we just have that moment then? yeah and that's something that i like the more i'm getting into recording and mixing and and producing in this whole world that's something i'm becoming like way more aware of is um 
the sound of inspiration on a recording, which is totally something you can't describe. It's like this invisible, elusive, uh, ambiguous thing that I've known about, you know, like we've all talked about it, but I'm just noticing like hearing recordings from me throughout the years where like, I was like, all right, I'm going to get this perfect. And like, you go back and you listen to it a couple of years later and you're like, this sounds nothing like when I put on Sky Blue Sky by Wilco. And it's like, you know, (laughs) it's like, which is like, I love that record. And and yeah, I want to make records that are that good. And um, it's not necessarily the microphone or the preamp or the space it was recorded in. It's the actual feeling of the music that's coming out is like, that's really what, like you could throw up a, you know, uh, iPhone recording and if it's played well, then it's going to sound great. Yeah, pretty much. Now, having said that, I want to buy a lot of different microphones that I don't have yet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I also think about like when I was starting out, I thought, and I think some of this was I was working on low budget things. So there's very limited uh, time, right? It's like I got a drummer like for a day to do everything. Yeah. And I would essentially make the album twice. I would like make these really elaborate demos and then hire people to play on them. And it's like the results were so stale. Like it just... Mm-hmm felt awful i mean everything was perfect right right but it's it was it didn't have any kind of like spark to it it wasn't particularly fun to make you know it felt like painting by numbers or something and uh, at the end there was no moment where i went like oh that's really cool i'm surprised we made that i don't even know if i feel like i was a part of it you know like that kind of feeling where you step back and you go whoa this is really cool Thing that we all had a hand in and I never would have made this on my own instead it was this feeling of like yeah that's pretty much like my demo but louder right or something. you know like yeah um, yeah yeah no t- totally and like that that's kind of my beef recently with like the modern day approach to mixing and like all of the recalls to to like change the the level of this one spot of the guitar fill or the vocal line on you know, the third line on verse two, it's like, or or like, can you tune the vocal here? It's like, man, the vocal doesn't need to be tuned. It sounds like a singer singing. Like it's, it's, it's great. It's fine. Like there's so many old recordings where the vocals are out of tune. And I like, I, like, I, I genuinely like that sound. Like, I, I like the rub of it. Like, I don't like things to be perfectly in tune it it like it kind of bothers me and it's becoming more it's it's just getting out of control and i just want to tell everyone to stop stop tuning stop melodying i, I know that you're so talking much. to me specifically jb it's i just hear crazy. you all right <laughs> but like e- everything now is just because of pro tools is is so gridlocked is so tuned is so perfect and like you go back and listen to a Ray Charles recording of everyone and and like everyone has been recorded in their own separate rooms so there there's no bleed and it's like we've gone to this place in recording of trying to do everything perfectly like everyone's recorded using a tuner set to to 440 beforehand it's like 
like the old Rycooter recordings, there was no fucking tuner on those sessions. Like they tuned to the piano. I think that is a huge, okay, I think that might, man, I'm just having this realization. So, okay, I I used to read this guy, John Vanderslice's blog a lot, who's a singer-songwriter and owns a couple studios um, in the Bay Area that are like amazing, immaculate, analog-only studios, whatever. But that was one of his things. Like he had a tuning fork and he would only allow people to tune with the tuning fork because he had identified that that was a thing with old recordings is that everything was a little out and maybe the tape machine speed was a little wonky and everything just got like this natural chorus. And I think that's why you could get away with the vocals being more out of tune. Now, yeah. it's like everything's so in tune, it's really obvious to me that the singer's a little flat on that note or a little sharp. Right. But it's like if everyone was a little flat and sharp, there's a bigger kind of window for grace in the performance. Yeah, totally. So, no more demos and no more tuners, all right? Yeah. <laughs> and God damn it, get me a nap pod already. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> you know what else I heard? Uh, speaking of like wonkiness, um, maybe it was on that Rick Rubin, Paul McCartney thing or something. He was talking about they didn't have voice memos, right? They didn't even have a freaking oh, yeah. cassette recording. He's like, the reason Paul we McCartney. wrote so many memorable songs was we actually had to remember it. And if you didn't yeah. remember it the next day, it probably sucked. Yeah. So throw out all the technology. We're going right. back to <laughs> cave paintings. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so uh, where are we? Well, we've uh, maybe demoed something. Maybe demoed something. And we've put this, it, is a, we, this is an intense question. There's so many, there's so many aspects to Well, and to I this. don't even think there's a right answer. I think it's just you have to be thinking about all of this. Like Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And it's different for every scenario and it's different for what you're going for. And when you're listening to other people and like we've done on when we do our production analysis, it's like you gotta be asking like, do you think they recorded during the daytime or nighttime? Do you think there were demos? Are these the demos? Like, you know, yeah. All of these decisions add up to your final thing. And these are all prior to even plugging in a piece of gear, you know? Uh, all right. Wait, I just had a, a thought that popped in my head about like tuning and gritting stuff like that. I think, I think what it is, is this is like, if you went back 30, 40 years ago and listened to recordings, like nothing was recorded to a click track, nothing was tuned using a tuner or like there was no tuning of the vocal or or anything like that. If you were going to be in a recording studio as a musician playing on a record that was of, of high, high caliber, you had to be really good at what you did. And so if you're a really good singer and you sing a a line that's a little flat or something, it's still going to be good because there's like tuning is only one small part of singing. There's all these other parts of it. And so if you're a little out of tune, but you're nailing all the other parts of being a good singer, it doesn't really matter. It's the same thing as when you hear a really good musician and their time is fluctuating a little bit, but the feel is still great. Right. Right. And so I think what has happened today is there's there's been this like explosion of recording with home 
recording gear and now everyone is a session musician or whatever but you know so so many people are just expecting to just play it and then you know snap it to a grid or or tune tune the vocals you know like the classic fix it and post thing that's on wait what, what's the line uh that sucked come on in yeah right yeah yeah and it, it's like if you're not if you haven't really spent the years to like really hone in on your craft it's just like it's not going to sound good if you don't fix it using a tuning software or whatever and it's still not going to sound good if you do it's just not going to sound good yeah i think that's that's what it is man i had that a lot like okay early on because i've been slowly getting less and less anal about things you know like when i started out it's like every note got tuned everything got fixed you know and um i noticed that a lot with like singers that weren't like super great you know i would i would be like oh that note's flat and i tune it and it still sounded flat like it was something about their tone that wasn't um happening you know right and that's something i've learned a lot from recording andy baxter He's amazing. Um, because he really singer. understands, like, first of all, he doesn't, this is something I've seen a lot. He doesn't write a melody or a lyric that doesn't sound good when he sings. Like, a lot of people are like, well, this is my lyric and this is my melody and I'm singing it. And it's like, well, it, it sounds bad with your voice, so change it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. He, and like, <clears throat> down to, I can't hit that note on this vowel. So I'm yeah. writing a different word. And there are certain vowels that are easier to sing like a high note totally. on than yeah. others. And it's like, you got to be aware of that for your voice. You got to know your voice. Um, and uh, some people are really resistant to that. When I'm like, uh, have you considered changing the melody? And it's like, well, that's it. That is the melody. Yeah. I'm like, the, yeah. okay, fine. Um, right. Yeah, right. So yeah, man, openness seems to be the theme that just keeps coming back. It's like, I think so. that's yeah. like the whole thing. Um Okay, so where are we at? We've uh, we've talked. I think we're recording now. Are we recording? recording. Yeah. I feel like if you've if you've gotten all this stuff done, uh, I don't know. For me, like the recording is like, hey, let's listen to some music that's inspiring, and then let's like try to identify what we like about it, at least like sonically, Mm. and then uh, go for that. And right. uh, know that you're probably not going to hit it and you'll probably uh, get off that track at some point and make your own thing. I mean, is there more to it or am I missing something? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I feel like for me, what got me to understand how to record is learning to mix. Yes. Like, I, I, I didn't... Like, there was so many years and years and years and years of being in the studio just i'd go into the control room and and whether it was for my project or a project that was on i'd be like eh, that doesn't sound right and i don't know what to say why this doesn't right. sound right and then um learning to mix and getting so into mixing um all of that went away like i, I even now like i I, you know, if anytime I'm on a, s- a session now and I go 
like I'm I'm just aware of how the kick drum sounds and I'm aware of my guitar sound and I'm aware of how everything is fitting together. It's like I just hear things so differently than before I learned to mix. And I think if you don't have that knowledge, you're really just at the mercy of the sound engineer and he or she is going to do what they want to um, if they have no direction. Um, which could be cool if you have like a really great chemistry with that person. Um, but I think a lot of times you probably don't, you just hired a a studio and you're, you're going in and if they don't have the same personal connection to the music that you might have from all the time that you spent with it, which they don't, which they don't, um, you're, you, you know, you're, you're really just kind of throwing the dice in the air, so to speak. Yeah. Um, uh, now, ha- having said that, like mixing is so daunting and it's so intense. Um, but this is also 2022, and there's like never been a time where there's more resources resources um, to learn. And for me, like the two biggest resources for me were number one, Chris Jacoby, who you're listening to right now. So that's a great resource. Is uh, shameless plug in this podcast, but it's true. I mean, like how many times did I call you up and like chew your ear off for like two Every hours? Every freaking day. And yeah. let me just say, it was in a period of my life where I had zero interest in No any interest. Of this. You were I like going into real about estate. plants and real estate. Yeah. And <laughs> you would call me up and be like, dude, I just tried this EQ. I'm like, ah, okay, have fun. <laughs> yeah. So it was Chris, and then also um, mixwiththemasters.com is amazing. It's it's like I've learned so much from that website just from – it's totally worth the – I think it's like $300 a, a year. Like if you want to get into recording or mixing or, or even if you don't and you just want to understand how to make r- records better, like there's n- like no question like go – be a member of that website and and you'll you will learn so much from it. Yeah, and I don't think I mean if if we're talking production as an overall process, I don't think you need to learn how to be like an amazing mix person, but you probably no. needed to have an idea of like what in, goes into that because one thing that comes up with recording um and, and mixing too, but hopefully you caught it in recording, is like, it's actually an arrangement issue and you're thinking that it's like an EQ issue or something. Mm-hmm. I had that a lot, like, early on, I'd be like, I, man, there's just like all this low mid crud that's happening. It's like, well, because everyone's playing in the exact same range. Like, all your yeah, guitar right, parts yeah. are in first position. Or, yeah. um, or it's like, man, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time like getting this violin part to uh like sit in the spot i wanted in it's like well he's playing all over the vocal and it's like if you think about an orchestra like who's playing the melody it's also the violin so if you're gonna have a violin and a singer at the same time the violinist needs to shut up when the singer is singing you know and so you you can kind of uh when you're mixing you start to realize these things oh that was an arrangement thing i should have fixed that when i was recording next time you're recording you're keeping an eye out for, oh, they're playing on top of the vocal. Um, and that can even happen with like a drummer, like filling over a vocal or something can be kind of annoying. I mean, sometimes it can be cool. We were talking about on the Landwatch track, like, and I feel like he breaks that rule all the time. There's like a guitar part that's like harmonizing with the lead vocal or something. But 
Um, yeah. Yeah. That's something I would like to get your thoughts on more is like um, arrangements, like outside of the, the recording stuff, like what else are you thinking about on a session? Um, like how do you identify like, oh, this is an arrangement issue versus a, a, mm. a recording issue or like this is a, like what we're doing is good, but it's not the right direction for where the artist wants to go or yeah. where we intended to go or whatever. How do you... I, I I had so many moments of that the other week on that Chris Casper session. And um, the way I identify it, that's a great way to bring it up is... Um, and I've gotten so much more in tune with this the older I get. And the only way I can explain it is uh, it's like this little feeling in the way bottom back part of my stomach that I get and it's it's like and I feel it all the time when I'm songwriting like if there's a line that I write or a melody that I write that I'm like you know I've been working on this song for like you know days and hours and hours and I'm like yeah that line's fine and then every time you come to that line you just get this little feeling like have you ever experienced that yeah yeah, it's like this this little feeling in your stomach where like you know something's not right. I I, I don't I've know got, if I have it in my, a specific part of my stomach, but I certainly have that thing like every time it comes back around like we got to repunch that line or yeah, we got something's weird some, there. Yeah. yeah, I I I think for me like my my uh, fiance Sarah always tells me that I I I I feel things in my stomach, like not even with music. I'm just talking about in, in life. So I think I'm like a very stomach based person. Stomach for some based. <laughs> but, um, I don't know, like there, for, there's this one song I could think of on that Chris Casper session where we went in, it was kind of like a gospel song and we went in and we did like two takes where it was just like full on gospel. Um, and we went back and l- listened to as a band and we were like, man it sounds killer like it's so great but i something is just is is like it's just kind of conventional and like it's right it's it's like we've heard this before like we all kind of agreed on that and one of us i forget who brought up the suggestion of like all right what if we just dialed it back like 80 percent like literally just just like went in and tried the same thing, like super minimalist. And we were like, all right, let's try it. So within the first like couple of bars, it was just like, it was just like an instant thing of like, oh my God, this is so vibey. Yeah. And then that feeling that I'm talking about was gone. Like it was no longer there. It was just like, this is the song. Like mm-hmm. this is, the, this is right. And Maybe a better way to like get more in touch with that is just listening to music. Like I, I think that is really great for arrangement knowledge. Of, Are you saying like, like uh, take a break during the session and listen to something new? Or are you no, just saying in your personal in general? Life? Yeah, like yeah, like in 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 general, like uh, really like really listening. And this goes back to the uh, active listening episode that we did a few weeks back. Like doing those type of exercises um, and really tuning into how great music and great records are stacked up in terms of the instrumentation. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to, to get better at that. Yeah. What about you? Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think one thing you mentioned of 
we've heard that before, you know, is kind of a, usually a good cue. Um, going back to the song, especially, okay, especially in the scenario where you have a lot of players, I feel like stuff can kind of derail. Like, you're kind of walking a fine line of like, oh, this is exciting. I'm being open to things, but also like they could take it in a totally different direction. That's not the right direction. And it, because everyone's competent, it's like you said, it's like, well, that's good, but it's not great. And it's not necessarily what this song needs. So I think sometimes going back to, okay, what's this song about, which side note is not always what the songwriter thinks it's about. Like, uh, I got to go on a tangent about that. I feel like a lot of like younger songwriters, if you ask them what their song's about, they'll tell you what inspired the song. Right. But that's not necessarily what the song is saying that it's about at this point. You know, like Mm -hmm. sometimes the song gets its own life after your spark of inspiration and you might not even realize that it's taken a turn or something. Yeah. Anyway, um, so coming back to that, I think also, and maybe again, this is like a, a playing thing and listening to a lot of different types of music, taking a song and playing it like 10 different ways, mm-hmm. you know, taking a song and playing it in parallel minor. And then what if I played it like a slow thing? What if I did it in six, eight? What if I did it? And, you know, if you have that ability to do that, I think on a session, you have the ability to go, oh yeah, I... I thought it was a gospel thing, but it's actually just this one aspect of gospel that I wanted to incorporate, but it actually needs to be this totally different minimalist approach. I remember hearing about Bob Dylan apparently doesn't, he doesn't even, he only writes the lyrics before the session. Right. Yeah. And now he's in a room full of people and he goes, let's try it like a waltz. No, let's try it like this. No, let's try it like this. And they might only play it one time. Right. And I also heard that like the Beatles would routinely do the play the song in a parallel minor, which kind of makes everything sound like a Cuban ballad for some reason. (laughs) And then they would go, ooh, that one chord was really cool. Let's play Mm -hmm. it in major, but then that one chord will steal it from the other version. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. But yeah, it's probably just listening to more music and listening to music that has stood the test of time. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people get stuck in like they only listen to their genre and they only listen right. to new things. Um, and it's like, no, you should listen to stuff that like people still respect and it's been out for 30 years, you know? Yeah. That, I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday and I was saying how, um, we, what record were we talking about? I think it was that um, uh, Adrian Linker, Linker yeah. record. Am I pronouncing that right? I have no idea. Her album called Songs um, is, I've been really into it recently. And um, the person that I was talking to, I had recommended they check it out. And they were they came back to me and they were like, man, I could tell it's good. Like I could tell it's like really high quality music, but it's just not resonating with me. And I was like, well, that's great. That's like probably a really good sign that your, that your ear, like it's something different that your ears aren't used to. And it's, it's a little bit of like a challenge for you yet. And I, I, I actually had a very similar experience with that album and the song that 
got me at first was not a lot just for just forever i think it's track nine yeah um and i i just couldn't stop listening to that song and then i, I like it would like bleed into the next track and then i started getting into that song and then you know eventually it's like i just now it's just like every song on that album just completely blows me away yeah. and I'm, I'm so glad for that experience because that means that like it was a challenge for my ears to get a to like it was it was a challenge for me to to get my ears around that album, which means that my ears have expanded for that and like my I've learned some new things subconsciously musically from spending time with that record. But I think that's something to like be aware of. Like when you hear a record that you could tell is like you know it's high quality it's it's very well made but maybe the songs aren't resonating with you like you know try listening to it four or five times before you move on to something else um because you you know you might be able to 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 gain a lot from it yeah i gotta tell you a few things um okay in college i was aware that i needed to do this and my father-in-law just so happened to get this, he wasn't my father-in-law at the time, but he is now, happened to get this book called A Thousand Recordings to Hear Before You Die. Oh, yeah. I've seen that book at your apartment before. And I got it, and I just started thumbing through it, and like everything that looked remotely interesting, I would like dog ear it or something. And everything I'd heard already, I would like make a note. And then I lived right up the street from Cheapo Records in Austin, which... One, I don't think it's there anymore. And it's also the original Whole Foods location. Um, ah. Anyway, I would go in there because they had literally cheap records. And I would comb through. And I just kind of ha like had this list in my head of like, you know, 10 to 20 albums that kind of on my short list or whatever. And if I saw one for like a good deal, I would just buy it, you know? Yeah. There were a lot of one, a lot of albums that really challenged me, you know? Mm. Um, and I also remember in high school... I was in jazz band and there was this drummer who's, you know, his parents were both like professional musicians. And so the amount of music that he'd listened to by the time I met him in like ninth or 10th grade was just like insane, you know? And I remember we, we left school one day. I don't know how we got out, but we just left during the middle and we went to a record store and he bought me Tom Waits's rain dogs. Mm. And he was like, this is amazing. And I put it in and I was like, this is the worst crap I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah, but totally. I, I kept it in my car, like in the little you yep. know, slot. Underneath. And literally once a year, I would pull yeah. it out and I'd put it in and I go, oh, it's awful. awful. And then it yeah. took like, I think four years. And on the fourth year, yeah. I put it in and I went, oh my gosh, yep. this is amazing. You know? That's so funny. And yeah, but I just all that to say, like, if people who have good taste are saying something's good and you don't get it yet. It's you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Uh, and you need to stick with it until you get it. Yeah, totally. I, I had that same experience with Wilco. Uh, I, I was kind of late to, to the game. I, I don't think I really got into them to like my mid twenties. And it was around the time that sky blue sky came out and, uh, I still remember, I was actually living in uh, uh, Austin and um, I was playing for, I forget her name, I was playing for some songwriter and she was like, you have to check out Sky Blue Sky and she she like burned a copy of it yeah. for me on CD and 
was in the CD player of my car for like a year probably. And I, I kept coming back to it. And I'd just be like, God, it's like everything is like, I hate the guitar sounds. Like I hate the guitar sounds uh-huh. of this record. I can't get, I can't get past it. And the songs, there's like no melody to them. And, and Jeff Tweedy's voice is usually a voice stumbling is block. voice like out of tune. And it's like, I just, I hate, I don't like the way this sounds. And it's literally like one of my favorite records of all time now. And actually every Wilco album has been that way for me except now I, I just know like anytime a new Wilco record comes out like including the the, the most re, re, recent one like when I first heard it I was like wow this is really like somber and kind of depressing and um, I was like I'm not really re- re- resonating with it yet but I know I'm going to and sure sure enough I, I, I always have that album on now yeah. I love it but um, yeah. that's that's when you know it's a good album. Is like you could tell it's high quality, but it's not really connecting with you yet. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about a lot of stuff leading up to recording and arranging and all that kind of stuff. Um, I guess all that's left is mixing and mastering. And after having talked about everything that we just talked about. I feel like there shouldn't be a lot of surprises when you get to mixing. I mean, there's plenty of creative things that you can do. But to me, if I've done my job up to this point, it's like stuff sounds cool and is arranged well. And it's really just a matter of kind of making sure the balance is right and EQing a little bit further and sprinkling around some effects. Like I... I feel like when I started out, like mixing was like a way bigger deal because I hadn't done all the stuff I was supposed to do during recording. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's just kind of like, yeah, that just sounds like a really good version of the thing I've made up to this point. Uh, But the only way that I got there was like having mixed things that weren't great and then vowing to not make that same mistake next time in tracking. You know, you just do that over and over and over. Yeah. And same thing where like you turn in your mixes to your mastering engineer and you get them back and you're like, Oh gosh, that changed a lot. It's like, well, if you mix it really well, it doesn't, you know what I mean? Or you, or you hired the wrong mastering engineer. That's perfectly possible, but it's like your mix should not necessarily in terms of level, but your mix should sound like a finished master and your rough mix should sound like a mix before you mix. You know what I mean? If you do that, it's like, yeah, it's not much to it. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think? It, it's funny that you brought that up because I was just thinking about that today while I was driving about how um, I'm, I'm like more and more as I get more into mixing and more confident about what I'm hearing and the decisions that I'm making. It's like I'm just leaning more towards like not doing as much, you, you, yeah. you know, like not making it so complicated. Just as you said, like get the balance right. And if something is poking out too much, then throw a compressor on it. And if it's not, then don't worry about it. And yeah. You know, yeah. I, uh, I feel like, you know, we've talked about compression on the show, but I feel like what, you know, a lot of times I, I don't compress everything. Like some stuff yeah. just I, doesn't get touched. Yeah. And the level, the balance thing, man, I think that's everything. Um, I've had this experience recently where I'm producing this project and we got one of the singles mixed and the artist was like really freaking out. Like, Oh yeah. Oh gosh. It's just like the vocals not right. And the EQ is weird and blah, blah, blah. 
and uh, Chris Bethay's mixing it. And I was like, man, I think you just need to talk to Chris directly. Because I felt like I was playing telephone and I didn't quite understand what she didn't like about it. And um, so they chatted. He sent another mix back. I, I thought the mi- first mix sounded great. And this one, I was like, yeah, that sounds good too. And she was like, yes, you nailed it. And then I reached out to Chris. I was like, what'd you do? And he's like, I turned her vocal up one dB. And I... <laughs> And I was already, <laughs> I was already doing a low mid cut, and I cut another half dB there. Right. It was like the tiniest change, but for her, it was like, oh yeah, whatever you did, magic, you know. And it's like that's the difference that a, a balance can make, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's right. like, yeah. But it's not always some super technical thing. It might just be like turn the kick drum up a little bit, like yeah. And so yeah, balance is. That's what mixing is, is balancing. And then you might have to tidy up some stuff that you screwed up in the recording. And the more you do that, like we've talked a lot about microphones, right? And it's like, well, if you notice that you're brightening this thing up every freaking time you mix, perhaps use a condenser on it next time, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. um, Yeah. To some some mixing up in like five seconds. There it is. Yeah. Mastering, who the hell knows what's going on over there? Just bring the volume up. Call the day. <laughs> yeah, I, I will add this. Like, if you've never had stuff mastered before, here's what you need to listen for when it comes back. Track to track, is the vocal level the same? Like, mm-hmm. if you have to, if you have to touch your volume knob ever, they didn't do a good job. There you go. Yeah. Or you don't know what you're listening for. But it's like it's really that. It's like, can you just listen to the album or the EP or whatever, top to bottom, and yeah. it sounds good. That's really all yeah. it is. Um, yeah right yeah it's like mastering for me is just like you you have these you know mixes this collection of mixes and of course they're all going to sound a little different um and then the mastering engineer takes them and pretty much just makes it a cohesive sound so it everything kind of flows into each other and they're all at the same volume hopefully and um yeah yeah it should be a pretty painless operation it, it's like each successive step should be less of an impact, right? You're mastering. Yeah. It should be like, okay, it's now 1% better. Yeah, right. It's like, it shouldn't, You sh- if, if you're not liking the mix, it's not going to change in mastering. You're probably no. like, so. Yeah. Okay, so we've been talking a long time on this one. Yeah. But this is stuff I'm like super passionate about. So Yeah, this is fun. Cool. Hopefully it was entertaining. Thank you, Felix, for the question. And um, hope you guys enjoyed this podcast uh, episode of Music Production Talks. My name is JP Ruggieri. This is my dear friend, Chris Jacoby. We are on Instagram via our names. Feel free to hit us up, ask us questions, and hopefully we'll see you next time. All right. Signing off. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Music Production Talks. If you're enjoying this podcast and are finding it to be beneficial for your growth as a musician, we would really appreciate a subscribe and a positive review on whichever platform you use for streaming. Reviews and subscribes help us grow the show and rank higher in podcast search engines. Thanks so much again, and we'll catch you next time. Mm